just want to thank you for singing heartily unto the Lord. Uh, Pastor Jack and I were at a pastor's conference this past week, and super encouraging. And the guy that leads music said to us, you know, you're just realize you're, you're in a high right now because there's 5,000 guys all singing the same thing. And when you come back to your church, it's not exactly going to sound like that, right? Like 5,000 voices. And uh, so I was coming with, with, I guess, meager expectations. And you exceeded them all. You exceeded them all. What, what joy to sing of Christ. Uh, what joy to sing of His grace and His mercy and His kindness towards us. Uh, what joy to sing together in agreement that that there's no boasting from us. It, it is all of Christ. He has redeemed us. He has extinguished the judgment uh, of God against us because of our sin. And we are reconciled to the Father because of Him. And there's no greater thing to sing about. There's no greater joy there is no greater hope, there is no greater message in all of the annals of history, in all of the news outlets. There's no message like this one. None. And so thank you for singing and reminding me. Remember, I told you, we are singing vertically to the Lord. It is praise to Him, but we are also singing horizontally because we are reminding each other, right? of the truths that we believe and the truths that we hold dear. And I know at times I need to be reminded daily. And so Sunday is always a, a great joy. Uh, you are dearly loved and uh, we just uh, rejoice in you and thank you for encouraging us in your singing. So let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, as before we look to his word. Father, we thank you for Christ. Lord, what a, what a marvelous, ingenious, glorious plan to redeem rebels, to redeem enemies, to love the unlovable, to send your son to die the death that your enemies deserved, that we deserved, and and yet he took it on upon himself and bore it willingly and perfectly. Oh Lord, what, what a marvelous hope that we have because of your plan of salvation, because of your Son. What hope and confidence and assurance we find, not in ourselves nor in our abilities uh, to... To live right lives, because often, Lord, we confess, we, we fail, we stumble, we trip up. We're not what we used to be, but we are not what we ought to be. And so the gospel is just a, a great reminder that all glory goes to Christ. We are redeemed in Christ alone. It has nothing to do with our works. It has nothing to do with our deeds. It has everything to do with the work of your Son. And so, Lord, we, we give you thanks for that.
great reality. We give you thanks for that wonderful assurance. Oh, Lord, that you would anchor your people to such a strong and steady Savior. Lord, may they anchor themselves this morning anew, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, back in 2018, uh, my family and I went on an epic 24-day tour of the East Coast. It was amazing and exhausting. Ask my kids. Uh, But we we spent time in Miami, Savannah, Charleston, Williamsburg, Jamestown, Yorktown, Philadelphia, New York City, Boston. Uh, We were taking in the great sights of American history, but... The highlight for me definitely was the time that we spent, I think it was about three days, three and a half days in Washington, D.C. If you need a boost of American patriotism, uh, spend some time in D.C. because it's all there, literally. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It's all there of our nation's nearly 247-year history. And there are monuments there that are reminding you of that history. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It's it's also there as it pertains to our nation's government. All three branches are housed in this compact city on the Potomac River. The White House, where the President of the United States, the Commander-in-Chief of our nation, not only lives, but conducts business there. The Capitol building where Congress works to pass laws is there. The Supreme Court, our highest court that interprets law and holds them up to our nation's highest and fundamental law, the United States Constitution. In addition, Washington, D.C. is home to the Pentagon where our military leaders coordinate worldwide military operations. Think of this, when when our country meets foreign dignitaries, it is done in D.C. When the president addresses the nation, it is done either from the Capitol building or from the Oval Office or perhaps on the lawn of the White House. It's done in D.C. This is more than a city. It's more than a location of our nation's governmental leaders. D.C. really has become a symbol for America. When you think of America, you may think of a lot of things, but when I think of America, my mind often goes to Washington, D.C. And in ancient Palestine, if you were talking to a Jew and you were to ask them what was the very symbol of their nation, they would say, Jerusalem. All eyes go towards Jerusalem. And why? Because the temple was there. The temple was the pride and the joy of Israel. It was the center of the nation's social and religious culture. The daily and annual sacrifices were conducted at the temple. The major feasts and the holy days that friends and families would gather around, would take place at the temple in Jerusalem. 
And so if they were able, they would want to go to, they would want to ascend to Zion, to Jerusalem, to the holy mountain where the temple of God resides. It was one thing to be in the synagogue hearing the teaching and reading the Torah, but it was altogether different, a different experience to be near or around the temple area during worship. Maybe a contemporary comparison for us might be the difference between looking at the Declaration of Independence in a textbook at school. I remember doing that. Or standing before the original documents in the National Archives in Washington, D.C. I was able to do that. It's awesome. There it is. The the Declaration of Independence, the, the Bill of Rights, the U.S. Constitution. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. And you might wonder, what does this have to do with the text this morning? Well, in this text, Peter is going to be using several Old Testament images and even terms to reference Christ and the church. He will speak of a living stone and a cornerstone and a spiritual house made of living stones, a holy priesthood and holy sacrifices or spiritual sacrifices that are often that are offered. So I want you to turn to first Peter two. And if you're able, stand with me for the reading of this section of scripture. First Peter two verses four through eight. Peter writes these words. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes upon him will not be put to shame. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this stumbling, they were also appointed. Here ends the reading of God's word. You can be seated. So just as D.C. is the symbol of America... And the Jerusalem temple is the emblem of Judaism. It is right to understand and know that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is the bedrock. He is the foundation of the church. When people think or speak of the church, the very first thing that should run to the forefronts of their minds and their hearts is Jesus Christ. We sing about Christ. 
We talk about Christ. We preach Christ. We love Christ. We love one another because of Christ. We treasure Christ. We even read this week in Colossians when Paul refers to Christ, when he says, Christ is all. It's true. He is. He is everything. He is everything to the church. He is the good shepherd. He is the living bread. He is the living water. He is, he is everything. He is the apex of the church. He is the linchpin. Everything centers around Him. We read of Him already this morning in both of our texts of Scripture. We, we are, the songs that we sang were centered around Him. Everything hinges on Jesus Christ. If it be not for Christ, we wouldn't be gathered here this morning. Now, Peter, in, even in this text, will make some really profound statements about who we are as New Testament believers, as saints, or as he refers to us here, living stones being built up into a spiritual house. A spiritual priesthood who offers spiritual sacrifices. But Peter will develop that even more in verses 9 and 10. And I don't want to preach Pastor Jack's message next week. So I'm not going to focus on that verse in verse 5 so much about us being built up. I'll make a couple of statements. But that really connects with what Peter will say in verses 9 and 10. So this morning, I want us to zoom in on what this text tells us about Christ so that we can join Peter, and as we really analyze the text, we can join the Father in treasuring the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter uses several building metaphors. We see the reference to stone. And draws from several Old Testament passages. You'll notice that probably in your text because it's all in caps. So if you are looking at a section, for example, in verse 6 and in verse 7 and in verse 8, there's a section there that is all capitalized. The editors are doing that so that you know that Peter is drawing from the Old Testament. And From these, he paints a a, a masterful portrait of Christ and Christ's centrality to the church. And so I want to examine those portraits this morning together. There are three of them that I want you to consider. And all of this in an effort and in hopes that you would walk out of here treasuring Christ more than you do even this moment. That Christ would be viewed as uniquely precious. And that is a word that you might have noticed is repeated throughout this text. He is to be, in our view, the greatest treasure. And so we see the first portrait in verses 4 and 5, and that is this, that he is the choice living stone. Christ is the choice living stone. Notice what it says. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, 
but is choice and precious. Notice that phrase in the sight of God. What we have in this verse and even in verses seven and eight is two views concerning Christ. And these two views are not equal to one another. The first viewpoint is that of men. And you'll notice what it says. This living stone has been what? Rejected by men. We'll talk about that more later. But notice the Father's view of the Son. To the Father, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. He is choice and precious. Now these are conflicting views. The human verdict, rejected, is overturned by the supreme court of divine authority that declares that, no, this stone, this living stone is choice, chosen. This living stone is precious or costly, invaluable. The builders reject him concluding that he's not fit for the structure. But the chief architect comes on scene and declares, no, this is the foundation stone. This is the cornerstone, and he is precious. He is choice. Now, Palestinian structures were commonly made of stone, But this word that's used here doesn't refer to just a loose stone that was lying in a field or along the roadside that you kind of picked up and just, you know, haphazardly piled one stone on top of another. No, this is a prepared stone. It's a it's a building stone that's been hewn in a in a definite shape for a unique purpose. In other words, Christ is the prepared and qualified stone, the one who is qualified to carry out all that the Father has ordained him to do. I would remind you of a passage that's familiar in Isaiah 53. And you will remember that when the, when the, when the Lord, when Yahweh speaks of his suffering servant in Isaiah 53... That he says, this servant will be despised and forsaken of men. From a human standpoint, he will not look the part. And not only that, the things that he says, the things that he does, that from the viewpoint of men, he will be rejected. In fact, he won't just be rejected, he'll be killed. He'll be cut off. Isaiah 53 tells us, from the land of the living. And by the way, the opening verses of John's Gospel that we read from this morning, John chapter 1, you have this definitive statement concerning Christ. Before you ever get into any of the details, He came to His own, and those who were His own, what? Did not receive Him. That's code for they rejected Him. And that's exactly what we see happening. All his awe-inspiring teaching and miracles are rejected. All of the prophetic promises that he coincidentally fulfilled are rejected. 
But also, in Isaiah 52, right before that section about him being rejected, Yahweh also says concerning his servant, this is Isaiah 52.13, he says this, My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. The world... His people will reject him, but but he is chosen for me. He will he will prosper. He will succeed in doing what I have sent him to do. And if you read through John's gospel, you see this so abundantly clear that he was sent by the Father to do his will. It was the very food of the Son to do the Father's will. And that was his definitive aim. That was his clear pursuit. And consider for a moment in the New Testament, the father's announced approval of his son, both at Jesus' baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration before Peter, James, and John, right? Do you remember what thundered from heaven? This is my beloved son with what? Whom I am well pleased. Right? With whom I am well pleased. Peter says, rejected by men, precious and choice in the sight of God. And all of Scripture validates and confirms that. He he is precious to the Father. He is honored by the Father. He is highly prized. He's pleased with his Son. He loves his Son. So here are these two diametrically opposed evaluations of Jesus. Now, of course, we know in the scriptures that's not uncommon. Man and God have often varied in their viewpoint. You probably remember this uh, verse here. Man looks at the outward appearance, right? Talking about David. But what? God looks at the heart. They look at two different things. There's two different evaluations, none more glaring, none more evident than when it came to the person of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that that word rejected actually indicates that these men actually applied tests to the stone. That's the idea, rejected having been examined or rejected having been tested. In other words, these religious leaders examine Christ and in their human estimation, though the revelation of God says something completely different, he fails the test. He doesn't measure up to their expectations and their demands. And so he is rejected. But God also, the Father also examines the Son. The Father also tests the Son. He weighs the Son. You could say in a real sense He does that for 33 years. Testing the Son, weighing the Son. And Peter says, his estimation, his verdict is, the Son is choice and precious. This reminds me of a story of two men who walked into the Louvre Museum in Paris 
one of the curators there, a man of great appreciation for art, stood as these two men stared at one of the great masterpieces of art. And one of the the visitors turned to the other and said, I don't think much of that painting. To which the curator who was standing by replied to him, Dear sir, if I may interrupt, that painting is not on trial. You are. The world has already assessed the quality of that painting. You only demonstrate the frailty of your measuring capabilities. And that's the truth. Jesus isn't on trial. He's already been approved. The Father has already declared of the Son, I am well pleased. He's already declared of the Son, He is my chosen one. He is the suffering servant. The Father has already said, this one is valuable, infinitely worthy. So Jesus isn't on trial. You could picture that red letter stamp. I guess maybe sometimes it's black, but it's that stamp that says approved. Right? That is the estimation of the Father to the Son. He is pleased. And how do we know that He is pleased? How do we know that the the final verdict of the Father concerning the Son is one of absolute and total approval? How do we know that He accomplished everything that He set out to accomplish? After all, He is cut off from the land of the living he's tried as a as a blasphemer he is convicted and he is sentenced to death he dies but we are reminded that the father's definitive approval is seen in the resurrection it's in the resurrection you might think looking at a text well where is this concept of resurrection here in these verses i didn't read the word resurrected well but you did Read how he is referred to as the living stone. That is not just because he was a historical figure who existed. That has everything to do with his being alive from the dead. God, the Father, sets his cornerstone, the Son, in place by the resurrection, by his exaltation. And notice, as verse 5 says there are implications about his resurrection to you and to me. Verse 5, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That means that as the risen Lord, this stone possesses and imparts life to those united to him by faith. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will what? Live forever. The living bread gives life. That's what he does. Because he lives, we live. That's why he's referred to here as the living stone. And by virtue of our unique union with the Son, we too are living stones that God is actively building a house, a spiritual temple, if you will. All throughout the scriptures, and even here, we see that our identity as believers is thoroughly wrapped up in Jesus Christ. His experience 
is ours. And Peter, this, this is not the only time that Peter will allude to this reality. He died, and by faith we also died. He was buried, and so were we. He rose, and we also rose in his resurrection power. So there is this unique union. I've died. I've been buried. And I've been raised to newness of life. And as each of us is united to Christ, the result of that is being brought into close and permanent union with one another. Living stones who are being built one on top of the other. A permanent structure. This is not just a jumbled pile of stones. These are living stones after the living stone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is shaping those stones and he's placing those stones to fulfill an assigned task. Paul uses the metaphor of a body. Many parts, right? Peter uses the metaphor of stones and a house, right? That's what, that is what is happening. The church is not where you go. It is what you are. We are living stones because of the living Christ. And Christ, just as he promised, is building his church stone by stone, being, up, being built up for a spiritual purpose. It's a spiritual house with a priesthood, a priesthood of not just some priests or the, the priests of Levi, but a priesthood of all believers. All of us living stones, offering up spiritual sacrifices of obedience to the Lord. That's the idea. Living stone, the living stone has, has brought life to living stones and he's building them up for a spiritual purpose. More on that next week. So this is, this is a spiritual house. I hope you think of that when you come to church. This is a spiritual house that literally beats with resurrection life. Resurrection power. So Christ is the choice living stone. Now, in the verses that follow, Peter is pondering and even applying several Old Testament texts to that point. Christ as the living stone. And that's why he leads, notice how verse 6 begins, for this is contained in Scripture. And he begins to quote. He quotes first from Isaiah 28, 16. And then in verse 7 he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22. And then the last part of the quotation in verse 8 is from Isaiah 8, 14. And the portrait we see of Christ in verse 6 is that he is the treasured foundation stone. He's the choice living stone, but he is also, verse 6, the treasured foundation stone. Notice what he says. And this is, by the way, the voice of God. This is the voice of the Father. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone. This is The Father speaking, the focus here is on His initiative, that He laid the stone. This is His choice stone. He has chosen it. It's an honored stone. This is a stone that He has already said in chapter 1, verse 20. This is a stone that was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And He says, and he who believes upon Him will not be put 
to shame. Now, in the context of Isaiah 28, this is a message of judgment on Ephraim for their disobedience and unbelief. And what Isaiah emphasized throughout the book comes to the very forefront here. And that is that those who trust in the Lord will escape judgment. They will not be put to shame. Isaiah was encouraging the the people not to put their trust in these foreign alliances, not to put their trust in these mil- the military strength, but to put their trust and confidence in Yahweh, the living God. And Isaiah says those who trust in Him, those who don't trust in Him will perish, but to those who put their faith in Him, they will triumph. And Peter echoes Those very sentiments here. If you trust in Christ, God's chosen, treasured cornerstone, you will not be disappointed. The stone will not prove faulty. If you build your life on this stone, your life will not crumble in the storm. If you hide yourself behind this stone, you will indeed be safe. If you stand on the truth of this stone, you will not be put to shame. I mean, in reality, just as it was in Isaiah to the church, it is the message. This is God's message to you. The Father is saying, trust the Son. Trust Christ. Believe on Him. You cannot lose. He's the chosen cornerstone. You, you, cannot be, you cannot be disappointed in having done this. What encouragement for these exiles that Peter is writing to who cannot trust much of anything at the moment. Because this isn't even their homeland and they're uncertain. And yet Peter is reminding these exiles, listen, in Christ's exile, you are safe. In Christ's exile, you are home. You are secure. We've been saying this morning of that kind of assurance. For from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. There is no disappointment in Christ. There's no being put to shame for those who believe. This is encouragement. This is encouragement. Do you remember how he described these saints before? Those who love Christ even though they've what? Not seen him. Though you've not seen Him, you love Him. Though you don't see Him now, you trust Him. And now He adds, listen, and and dear exiles, dear weary exiles, you will not be disappointed. There is no disappointment in Christ. Sure, right now there are trials. He's going to remind them of that. He already has. They're being tested. But there is final vindication There is final vindication. Christ will not fail. He is the cornerstone. Now, what do we mean exactly when we 
talk about a cornerstone. That's not how we build anymore. But in the ancient world, a, con- a, a cornerstone would control the lines of the building. It sets all the proper angles for the, for the building, both the horizontal and the vertical. It's the difference between a building being off, right? Being crooked, standing out in places that it shouldn't. The, the cornerstone had to be the stone that they spent the most time on. It needed to be flawless or the entire building would be off. It, if it was crooked, the building would be crooked. It needed to be precise. So the cornerstone provided a a basis for the directional and structural integrity of the building. And if you look at some of these cornerstones in the ancient world, these are massive. They are massive. They are tons and tons. And they're huge, 40 to 100 feet long and, you know, 10 to 30 feet wide and they're just massive you wonder how in the world they ever move these things let alone chisel that much granite and rock to be precise but the point is christ is the key he he's the linchpin he is the the foundation he's the the measuring standard the the church conforms itself it aligns itself with Christ, who He is, what He's done, what He teaches. We conform ourselves to Christ. He is the Lord and Master, and He is the cornerstone. We don't align ourselves or conform ourselves however we want. No, we align ourselves to Him. He's the linchpin. He's the foundation. And very practically, if you want a real easy way to gauge the durability of a church. The, the sturdiness and steadiness and stability of the church. The, the precision or uprightness of a particular church. You only need to look at one thing. What are they saying about Christ? What are they saying about Christ? If they say nothing, we know they're off. Their message is about some other thing. Their foundation is some other thing, some ethical issue or social injustice or whatever it might be. We, we know they're off. Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the foundation. And so we need to ask ourselves and we need to ask anytime we're looking for a church, do, does this church make much of Christ? Do they sing about him? Do they preach about him? Do they direct people towards Him? Is He the adoration of their heart? Do they, do they encourage others to embrace Christ, to, to run to Christ? Is, is Christ all? He is. He is central, foundational, everything aligned with Him. You remove Christ from the church. And the church crumbles. It collapses. It disintegrates. Or to use a popular term, it deconstructs. It does. You remove Christ and His Lordship. Christ and His substitutionary atonement. Christ and His glorious resurrection. Christ and His, his teachings. 
and a church will crumble. He is the very cornerstone. And the response of the church towards Christ is one of trust. It is one of faith. It is one of confidence. It is one of treasuring. Do you notice that repetition? I mentioned it before of the word precious. Verse 4, he's rejected by men, but is precious in the sight of God. Verse 6, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a what? A precious cornerstone. You see, that's what believers do. Because the Father sees the Son as infinitely valuable, as precious and choice, so we, the church, see Christ in the same likeness. We treasure Christ. They see Him as infinitely valuable and costly because that is what the Father does. So if God who sees all things, just think about this for a minute. If God who thinks, who sees all things and measures all things, if he looks at Christ and says, approved, choice, precious, valuable, what should be the, the response of believers? We too. This is why he begins verse 7. This precious value then is for you who believe. Christ is the the treasured foundation stone. That's what believers, that's how believers respond to this choice and precious stone, the cornerstone. But there's a final, there's another response. We've alluded to it already. So Peter has portrayed Christ as the choice living stone, the treasured foundation stone. Notice what he says, but to those who disbelieve, he is the rejected stone. And we see that in verses 7 and 8. And this is a strong contrast, right? So there is those that, that see him as being precious and valuable and treasured. And then right there in the middle of verse 7, But for those who disbelieve, and then Peter quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. By the way, Psalm 118, verse 22 is a repeated quote in the New Testament. Jesus himself uses it of himself in referencing the religious leaders and the way that they rejected him. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the cornerstone. Peter mentioned already that rejection in verse 4, and now he defends it. He he takes a text of Scripture and and, and points out that, that the world, that these Jews in particular, had rejected the cornerstone. And it's very clear, the world hates the one the Father loves. The world rejects the one that God accepts. For them, that stone doesn't measure up. It's inadequate. It's imperfect. It's unacceptable. I already mentioned that Jesus quotes this during the Passion Week, too. This Psalm 118 to 
directed to these scribes and Pharisees. This is Matthew 21, Mark 10, Luke 20. Peter himself quotes this to the religious establishment, the Sanhedrin that is persecuting these newly formed Christians, this church. And Peter again reminds them of that passage that they likely heard from Christ himself, who who said the same thing. Christ comes, the promised Messiah comes, and he is rejected. The stone, the builders, right? He's the very rejected stone. And this one, this rejection is nullified by the Father and and set up as the chief cornerstone. By the way, that's a common theme in the Scripture, God choosing those things that are rejected by man. We see it all the time. Uh, you know, the, the Jews, when they wanted a king, they looked at Saul and thought, hey, that's, that's a man's man. You know, that's like the, the poster boy for Abercrombie, and he's the you know, poster boy of athleticism, and he's kind of the, he's chiseled. He just looks the part. And they look at this young David, and he doesn't fit the part, and yet God chooses him, right? He, before that, you know, you got Moses. Sure, he had a, uh, you know, a, a well-to-do upbringing, but, but he has some kind of impediment with his speaking, and, and yet the Lord chooses him to be the very voice of God in establishing a nation and giving the law. You think, now I know in Acts, it, it talks about, especially in the first chapters, the, the megachurch, right? The first megachurch in Jerusalem, right? Thousands of people are converted. But keep reading. Keep reading, right? There's a persecution that breaks out, and what happens? They're all what? Scattered, right? Which is a good thing, because the gospel goes with them. But for the most part... These guys are a ragtag group of outcasts who are not understood, who are maligned at times. I read some of those things that the Roman Empire thought of the church. These guys are a bunch of strangers. They're oddballs. They're foolish to the vast majority, right? The vast majority reject the stone that was provided. The vast majority see this stone as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so Peter, in in some sense, says, listen, you're in good company because the Lord himself experienced those very things. He was rejected. The Father exalts the Son, but the world rejects Him. And the experience of the church wasn't always as what we experienced, the ease of which we we come and, and, and gather together, right? There was often difficulty in the church's history. They were the minority in so many ways, up against a, a world of unbelief, a world of Rejecting, and it might even look, 
you know, to, to the exile who's, who's had enough. I, listen, we're not winning this thing. We're losing. Christ is being rejected everywhere we turn. And those who do receive him are small. And Peter, in a real sense, is saying, listen, listen, weary exile, human unbelief does not frustrate or defeat the ultimate purposes of God. It doesn't. It may feel like it at times. You might feel small and insignificant and no one is believing like you are. But listen, if God plans for Jesus to be the cornerstone, the chief, precious, choice cornerstone, the treasured cornerstone. Listen, humans can betray Him. They can desert Him. They can deny Him. They can mock Him. They can strike Him. They can spit upon Him. They can hit Him with rods. They can crown Him with thorns. They can strip Him, crucify Him, and bury Him. But they cannot stop Him. Right? And if we are living stones from the living stone, why are we shocked that, we're, that we would experience some of the same things that Christ himself experienced? Listen, and, and if you're an unbeliever here, you need to hear this too. Christ is the cornerstone whether or not anyone believes it. That's reality. That is reality. It doesn't matter what, how you respond. It doesn't. I mean, I would advise you to respond in faith and repentance. So would Peter. But him being the choice cornerstone, that, that's already been determined. And your unbelief doesn't shake that one bit. Not at all. Whether the world believes it or not, he is the cornerstone. And so if you trust Christ, God's cornerstone, you will not be disappointed. That's what Peter says. This stone will, prove, will not prove faulty. If you build your life on this stone, you won't crumble. You can't lose. And so these weary saints, he's encouraging them. Yeah, it looks like the world is rejecting. That's why he says in verse 9, but you're a chosen family, a royal priesthood. All right, we'll look at that next week. Verse 8, Peter quotes Isaiah 8.14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. To the unbelieving world, Christ is a tripping hazard. We've seen that even in our own day. They trip over him. They collide with him. They don't realize that in the end they lose. That they're hurting themselves. It, it, will lend, it will lead to their own demise and their own judgment. This is not a stone you want to reject. This is a stone that for those who come to him will not be ashamed or disappointed. But to those who don't come to him will be of great disappointment. And will be of great shame. And will be of great judgment. You, you can't evade Christ. You can't. Everyone's going to stand before Him. He's unavoidable. 
Don't trip over him. Run to him in trust and confidence. I I pray that you've done that. If you haven't, I'd encourage you to do that this very moment. To turn from your sin and run to Christ, the, the perfect Savior. The precious Son. To trust Him. For you will not be disappointed. Many struggle to understand that final line from Peter. The first part's easy enough there in verse 8. They stumble because they're they're, they're disobedient to the Word. They don't come to Him because they don't want to. They distrust and disobey His Word. But that next phrase says, And to this stumbling they were also appointed. And we kind of scratch our heads like, what? What do you mean they were appointed to unbelief? God appointed unbelief. Peter's words at the end of this verse are intended, I believe, to sever the last strand of self-reliance. It's the arrogance of those who are rejecting the Son. That they think that they are the master of their own destiny. That they're carving out their own way. And they're not going to be forced into bowing the knee to this, you know, Christ. To this, that is the, the stumbling, the disobedience, Peter says they were appointed. In other words, if any proud unbeliever should boast, I've chosen my own destiny, my, my own disobedience, my own stumbling, it, to show God that I have the ultimate say in my life. I have the power of ultimate self-determination. And I can frustrate the purposes of God with that self-determining will that I possess. If anyone boasts in that way, Peter responds with the awesome words, that, well, actually you can't. You only think you can. You're not even frustrating the plan of God by your unbelief. You'll discover sooner or later that whatever you choose, and mark this, this is a real choice that is crucial. And it is what you are choosing. But whatever you choose is unto this you were appointed. In other words, it appears that man controls his destiny, but in actuality... God reigns over it all. God and not man will have the last say. No human can thwart the ultimate purposes of God. Not even unbelief. Which again, I understand why we scratch our head at it. I I do as well. Proverbs 69, a a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Strange reality, isn't it? I mean, we make choices every day, right? We make plans and we plot and we go and yet God is determining our steps as well. There's divine sovereignty at work, things that we don't even see. And Peter presents the Lord as sovereign over it all. It may not appear like like it, right? It doesn't seem like it. It, it, it. It might appear that things are just happening randomly. It may appear like God's plan is being thwarted time after time after time. It may appear that we serve a powerless God, but in reality, you put those x-ray goggles on and you can see real reality. 
that, that he has an unstoppable plan that includes belief and unbelief, that includes rejection and honor, and that he is sovereignly controlling while not manipulating or forcing, right? He's doing it all, that he is at the helm. Peter said this very thing to the religious establishment in Acts 4 when he was preaching, right? He says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And then he says this, it's strange, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. They acted, but so did God. And their acting didn't thwart God's purposes. Man, Again, hear me, man is responsible for his sin, and he sins willingly. God is not forcing your hand. You cannot blame him. Yet God controls all events in history. Why did Peter insert such a theologically loaded phrase to comfort his readers? To comfort his readers who's asking, why is, why is Christ so easily rejected? Why is the message falling on deaf ears, it appears? Why are are we so small in number? Why are there more people in the grocery store than there are in the church? Has God lost control? Has his plan failed? Peter says, not at all. He appointed the cornerstone, though rejected by men. He has called a people to himself, built them up. He has even appointed the disobedient. They're all part of the plan. I know it appears this world is out of control, but it isn't. God is at the helm. I know it looks like everything is going to pot. The church is shrinking. Evil is surging. But the Lord reigns. And His cornerstone is in place. His cornerstone is in place. And those who trust in Him will never be put to shame. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. What immense encouragement it is to us. Lord, we, we too cry out that your precious, your, your cornerstone is indeed precious. It is infinitely valuable. We thank you for Christ. What, what a great joy to know him, to trust him, and to place our confidence in him. Help us to do that each moment of every day, knowing that you are sovereignly at work. Oh, Lord, may we trust that. Help us to do that in our weariness as exiles, we pray.